Welcome to the Quest Express, your passport to immersive travel experiences and cozy conversations. For curious explorers who understand the art of slow travel, we're your go-to podcast. Every few weeks, we touch the heartbeat of a new city where we chat with artists, innovators, historians, and entrepreneurs who make each city come alive. The Quest Express is not just a podcast, it's your ultimate slow travel companion. It's an invitation to begin your own quest. My next guest is fueled by a purpose that rivals the boldest visionaries of our time. Paul Atkin is a founder, an entrepreneur, and a musicologist. In April 2015, he launched his most ambitious project yet, the reconstruction in Venice, Italy, of the world's first public opera house, the Teatro San Cassiano of 1637. Eight years later, and the impossible dream has become a reality. A site has been found, and the technical process of its acquisition is in full swing. Having secured the site, Paul is now looking to secure the remaining funding and restore historically informed Baroque opera to Venice. So first, I'd just love to talk to you a little bit about Venice. What was your first exposure to Venice? Do you remember that? That goes back a long while. That goes back 40 years ago, uh, slightly more, just as a, an 18-year-old kid on a tour of Europe. Those sort of wonderful tours one used to do as a child, uh, 18-year-old boy, nine countries in 10 days, that sort of thing. Came to Venice, came to St. Mark's, and of course, it, it blew my mind. But the funny thing is, and how time works, I had no idea that 40 years later, I'd be coming back here and, and living in Venice and being a Venetian in, in all, all but name. And it, one never knows. One passes a, a city, enjoys a moment, one doesn't know when that's going to come back in the future. So mm -hmm. it was one of absolute awe mm. and the smell and the, the colors, that, that pastel color and, and the beauty of the city, the vibrancy. Mm. I was curious about that. I was curious to know, did you get a zing? Did you have this foreshadowing or this feeling that you would be there, that you'd live there someday? I think it was love at first sight, but I, I think the love was for Italy. Mm. as much as for venice and the the crazy thing is as much as i love venice i'm here because the project demands that i'm here you know the first opera house in the world was in venice there, therefore mm -hmm. i'm in venice had it been in milan or had it been in florence i would be in florence so mm -hmm. i've not chosen venice venice has chosen me by its own right. ingenuity its own exuberance its brilliance in the early 17th century in starting this crazy boom. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning about the project being a crazy project. The whole concept of opera is crazy. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, it's the most extraordinary spectacle in the world. And that it started in Venice. In fact, it only could have started in Venice because of the, the blend of entrepreneurship in Venice at that time, the blend of the at that time, let's just share with our audience exactly when opera started. We'll definitely get to the project in a moment. Mm -hmm. I want to talk to you a little bit more about Venetian history as you know it, for those who aren't as aware. So let's first start with when opera started. 
So we have the birth of opera in Florence around 1597 and 1600 with the famous Medici weddings and the first spectacles uh, by Caccini and by Jacopo Peri. Then we have the most famous opera, the, the one by L'Ofeo by Monteverdi, Claudio Monteverdi, in Mantua in 1607. Okay. Yeah, private court, private court events. Mm-hmm. And then we have this gap till 1637, when mm. suddenly in Venice we have this public opera theatre opening. Mm. And for the first time, you and I would have been able to go to the theatre and buy mm. a ticket and see, not to the theatre, that had happened already in Venice, again in Venice first, but to the opera for the first time. Wow. The first time opening the doors to a public opera, and that's, that, that's what blows my mind, the idea of um, time and place, that we're in this place today, but in 1637, this was being wow. opera was being born, where you go and people, you have stage effects, you have fire on stage, you have fountains on stage, you have a whole sea scene on stage. Mm-hmm. The magic of that, imagine, you haven't seen it before. Right. And so can I ask you your opinion as to what were the conditions that created that, the precursor to opera? Was it artist salons in aristocrats' homes? What do you think was the perfect storm that because I know we had plays back in Shakespeare's time, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Monteverdi was a contemporary of, of Shakespeare. They're just three years apart by birth. Mm. What you have is in you have the blend exactly as you said. In fact, you have in the private palaces artistic displays approaching opera, or sometimes dramatic performance to music, and then you have in the theatres, including our own theatre. The, the plays, the Commedia dell'arte, for the which were just for the for the public, so the raw plays, just like Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and so we're talking the same sort of period as, as well. Then you have this magical coming together of the two, and the Tron family who had run plays in Venice in this theatre for fifty years, when it had burnt down for the second time, on the third building, which is our our theatre. They inserted for the very first time in the in history an orchestra. We'd say orchestra pit today, but it's it's mm-hmm. an orchestra. It's not a pit at that time. And so for the first time in history, someone is saying, "Well, let's play music in a public space." Wow. And it's such a crazy thing because to us we hear music everywhere, but if yeah. we can go back and unsee everything we've seen in our lives and unhear everything we've seen in our lives, mm. the idea of playing music in a public place was extraordinary revolutionary absolutely an act of rebellion even well it's (laughs) italy is not a country for rebellion or for revolution it's a a country of evolution but this is still pretty spectacular Mm -hmm. this is a big move wow so let's talk about that because obviously italy has had so many exports that are beloved across the world and we won't go into that but a little bit more about venice I've been there. I I was there in 2015 and fell in love with it. I love anything that takes me back in time through a through a portal back to a different time. And that's how I felt in Venice. I loved getting lost there. I loved the fact that there were no cars. From your experience, what are a few things that makes Venice different than other cities in Italy? Well, you've just said it perfectly. It's that idea of place and time. I get a, a huge kick out of walking down 
the entrance to the old theatre and thinking Monteverdi would have walked down here. I'm mm. standing where Monteverdi or Vivaldi or Cavalli would have stood. In that space, in that moment, the only thing that separates us is time. But mm. we're in the same place. And it's more evident in Venice, isn't it? Because it hasn't changed. It's, right. It, or, or the changes are not very clear to the eye. And so you can walk over the same bridges that, that Monteverdi would have walked over. You can feel the city. You can feel the age of the city. You can feel its history, its, its energy still. It's still living. It's still thriving. Oh, that's beautiful. It's almost like an anomaly. And who do you think is responsible for preserving Venice? Because usually cities get eaten alive with modern things built. I mean, obviously, Venice is one of those cities, I believe it gets 25 million or 20 million visitors a year. So yeah. I understand that part of that preservation today might be because of tourists, that they want to preserve this gem. But I have a feeling that the reason and cause for it goes way beyond just pleasing the tourists. So what do you think? Look, I, I get the concerns. The hit and run tourism of 25 million is not sustainable. And mm -hmm. I get the, the worry about saving Venice. But underneath all that, why is Venice such a great city still? Well, I, I'd say it's to the Venetians. They have mm -hmm. this stature they have this ability to bounce back they have this energy mm. they have this stubbornness if you like and i think they are the reason why venice is a success and mm. i don't think we talk enough about the success of venice it's a thriving city yes you have, four, you have all these islands and they're all connected and they all work together and we all have modern facilities i'm talking to you here with, with you know, modern technology it's a thriving city still working against the odds the idea of building on the mud that, on which it's built is extraordinary. Yes. The fact that those buildings remain and that they know how to adapt them to those building conditions, which are a nightmare, it's, it's remarkable. It's one of the great wonders of the world for me. We should credit more the Venetians and actually the Comune and the, the council and the Italian government because it's a huge success story. Mm -hmm. Going back into history, being an island in, surrounded by salted water its ability to collect natural water uh, mm. through the, the roofs, falling into these uh, campi where they would, the water would be dilute, uh, filtered, is a remarkable piece of engineering 400 years ago. To do that today, the, the awards it would get for sustainability would be tremendous. Right. So, again, we talk about saving bears, but actually this is a place that's thriving and it's a huge success story. Yeah. It's almost a bit patronizing to talk about saving Venice than it sounds like. Well, I think with sustainability, we have to take it very seriously. Mm -hmm. I think there are, there's a wonderful movement at the moment. We work with a lot of partners, such as uh, Hélène Molinari and, and Sumas, who are using Venice to show the world the way forward in terms of sustainability. Mm. So we have issues to address. And even our, even our theatre, it, it's all about sustainability. It's all, all about creating work for Venice. I mean, we, we have a problem in Venice of, of the falling population. Um, a thousand a year, some reports of population levels being between 25,000 and 50,000. Yeah. In that sense. But if we create a cultural centre, a cultural hub built on, on, on its, its history and legacy, then we can find solutions by creating new jobs in Venice. Mm -hmm. we, we've already worked with 30 different companies. We will have 300 employees in the theatre. 
Okay. It's a way about creating a new future for Venice. Absolutely. Yeah. And I want to talk about that for a second. The declining population of Venice, the native Venetians mm. who are fleeing. And then I want to talk about the history. I don't think you can really understand the DNA of a particular group of people or a culture of people without going all the way back to the conception, the yeah. the birth of the birth of the city. And as you mentioned, resilience and stubbornness. But if you could talk to our listeners about how was Venice created? They were fleeing something, an enemy, weren't they? Absolutely. They were fleeing and they, to protect themselves, they, they went out to the islands in the marshy lagoon. Uh, and in fact, uh, started carefully building their, their lands there because the channels were difficult to attack because some would be shallow, some would be deep. You had to have that local knowledge. Mm. And they literally used the lagoon as their, as their castle, their wall, to protect them. Wow. And thus the city was able to grow. And so they, they went through a terrible time to, to create this wonderful city, you know, 1,600 years ago. Herein lies and, the resilience. And herein lies the resilience and the never give up, never say die, and the determination to create something out of nothing. Beautiful, godly, yeah. sacred. Wow. So what did Attila the Hun want? What was the cause of this acrimony? Well, he was um, plundering and building empires, as was the way in those days, and as sadly can be today. So mm. invading, conquering, plundering, Got it. increasing one's riches, increasing one's domain, one's power, very much of the time. Got it. Well, we have Attila to thank for... Our gondola rides. Isn't it strange how things how things uh, come around? <laughs> it really From adversity is. Adversity comes the most beautiful things sometimes. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. I spent some time in Bali, and I feel like that's also a culture that has a love hate relationship, perhaps, with their tourists. I would imagine that the tourism is part of the reason that some native Venetians are leaving because it becomes tiresome. Would do you think that's accurate? Yes and no. I think. No one wants to leave their home country of or course. their hometown. Yeah. Um, I think it's possibly the fear for the future, for the lack of opportunity for jobs, creation, mm. work. That's why our, our project and ones like ours are so important. Venice has always been a city of tourism. You know, Going back to the foundation of San Cassiano, it wouldn't have succeeded then without tourism. Mm-hmm. And... But it's the type of tourism, isn't it? It's the quality of tourism as good and as bad. So what we call the day hit and run tourists that come in for one day, perhaps spend one euro fifty on some sort of piece of memorabilia and then go mm. back out of Venice, giving mm-hmm. nothing but only causing damage. Mm-hmm. That's what everyone's tired of. That's what no one wants anymore. What people do want are people who come and stay two or three nights in Venice who go to the museums, go to the opera, go to the theatre. And in that sense, the more theatres we can have, the more museums we have, the more people have to see, the more we all benefit. And, of course, if you go to the opera, you're going to go to the, you're going to stay in a hotel, you're going to go to have a restaurant, you're going to mm-hmm. go to a museum in the day, you're going to go to La Fenicia the other night or, or the Goldoni. So we all feed each other and help each other. Mm-hmm. Um, People sometimes say to me in Venice, well, we have three theatres. Do we need a fourth? <gasps> well, in London, we have 241 theatres. 
Yeah. Um, how, many, how many do we have on Broadway? Mm-hmm. It, it's, it feeds each other. It supports each yeah. other. It causes growth. That's, that's what we want. Let's talk about a little bit more about your background, your passion, your love. Let's talk about your industry, and then we'll talk about the project. My love affair with Italy, I, I, I'm doing this project out of a sense of repaying a debt. Mm. I owe all that's great in my life to, to Italy, I, of course, to my parents and, and, and things like that, of course. But mm-hmm. I'm talking in terms of this project. I've met so many friends here, had so many loves here, um, so much enjoyment of music here. And let's not even talk about the wine and the, and mm-hmm. the food. <laughs> and I... Uh, as a young musician, young musicologist, I was got into Italian opera thanks to Puccini. He started my love affair with Italian opera. I finished doing him, working on him for my PhD, for my degree. And then when it came to my PhD, I wanted to go back to the beginning of opera. Mm. And thus, I started the journey in, in Modena of early opera. And um, that's grown until the point where, when I was studying in Cremona, that same issue of time and place, walking through, feeling the city, and then realizing, hang on, we still, in 3,000 theatres, we don't have a the first theatre, we don't have the, anything remotely like the first theatre. And that's where the project started. And that's really my way of repaying my debt to Italy, is, is, is how the love affair has evolved. It's just that's that beautiful. we have this need for this theatre, it doesn't exist. Had we had a similar need for something to do with Puccini, I would be working on Puccini or, or Verdi. But it's, mm-hmm. This is where the weakness is, and perhaps sometimes from outside one can see that better. Mm-hmm. And I believe any any project or any artist or creator who wants to keep the creation as authentic to its original form as possible as they can should should be protected and supported, I feel like. I mean, what a beautiful endeavor to reestablish the authenticity of the first opera house. So so you said that the idea itself, or rather the need, came to you in Cremona? It, it did. I, I started just started my PhD, was looking into the beginning of opera, and then of course realized that, hang on a second, there is no theater to go to, there's no theater to see. This idea we t- touched on at the beginning about walking through the city and feeling that question of time and, and place. Mm-hmm. Again, following the footsteps of Monteverdi, because he's from Cremona, as you know, and ask myself, hang on a second, this doesn't exist? Really? Mm. Are you sure? And and going back and checking. And then I, I had this wonderful experience at the Shakespeare's Globe in London with Mark Rylance, the, the great actor, playing Julius Caesar, and being in the Globe with this authenticity, this historically informed performance. This issue of place, because we can have um, historical informed performance in the orchestra. We know about tuned instruments, etc. We don't have a, that same tradition for performance on stage. And certainly we don't have the place to perform it. Now, the Shakespeare's mm-hmm. Globe has created that place for Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. We need to create that same space for opera, for Baroque opera. And, I, and by the way, I'm a huge fan of all forms of opera. If it's something modern, digital, new, I'm mm-hmm. the first there. Mm-hmm. But we mm-hmm. don't have a place where we can focus on how it was performed mm-hmm. to understand how they did it. And therefore, and this is me speaking as a musicologist, 
to understand the process of the performance of you know of to study the execution of opera what happens when you have a a flying machine going through the air and you're performing on stage how does that work how does that change everything what mm-hmm. happens when the whole stage becomes a sea it's it's those sort of pieces of magic or understanding delicate things like how the candles in the sky are turned out one by one yeah, you know, the, stand, the candles that are representing stars in the sky, I should say. Yeah. How they disappear one by one. And then you understand how they did that. And it gets more and more intriguing. So for those of us who are not regular opera goers, um, for those who aren't familiar, tell us what is the difference between going to an opera today in, say, a symphony hall or a theater and the experience of going to the Teatro San Cassiano, as it will be when it's finished? Well, that's a good question. (laughs) There's a technical point of view in, first of all, in terms of size. We are talking of a theatre that its orchestra stalls area are just six rows deep. So imagine how small and tiny that is. And every theatre you go to, especially in America, to think of the beautiful Met uh, that we all Mm -hmm. love and adore. Uh, I think I could put six San Cassios in there without even trying. Mm. I certainly could put the entire San Cassiano Theatre on the stage and still walk around it. So we're talking about difference in size. Okay. Yeah, and that has a big effect because the really big issue here is that you and I and everyone who's going to listen to this has never seen or heard an opera by Monteverdi, Cavalli or Vivaldi exactly how they would have experienced it in the same way that that they would have experienced it because Mm -hmm. we have these large theaters now so the sounds are different Mm -hmm. with baroque opera you need to hear the counterpoint you need to hear the individual instruments in a big theater they blend so rather than have have that played out and of course without the costumes and without the scenery and this beautiful machinery that that, you know the deus ex machina that, that descends from the sky or the the special effects, costumes, gestures. We've never experienced the opera in such a tight, intimate, personal, mm-hmm. immediate space. Mm. Um, it's, you know, yeah, I think to the singers is almost intimidating, but it's electric that, you know, it's great to use the word electric that didn't exist then, of course, no electricity, candlelight, mm-hmm. yeah. natural light. The, the costumes made of silver and gold thread so that they would reflect the candlelight. The whole experience is so immersive, and none of us have experienced that. So I can't say to you, uh, point you somewhere to go and see it yourself, because it does not exist today. Now, please excuse me for this analogy. It's not an apt analogy. But the first thing that popped in my mind was when I went to hear Jacob Dylan, Bob Dylan's son, at a very small venue in San Francisco. There were maybe, there's maybe enough room for 50, 60 people there. And there's really nowhere to hide. And also it was, it was acoustic and it was great. I really enjoyed the performance, but I would imagine that this is also acoustic, right? Because it's so small, there's no AV guy. (laughs) I think it's a brilliant analogy, actually. It's a perfect analogy because it's about, with Bob Dylan, we're talking about one of the great poets of our time aren't we mm-hmm. and we are talking in in our period of 17th and 18th century opera the best poets of the day mm-hmm. and the point is it's drama per musica as you know so it's it's drama as expressed through music 
So you should be able to hear every single word and follow the text as if it was a play. The whole point of the singing the opera is that you hear it better. Now, you can't do that in a large auditorium because you have to expand and raise your voice. In a small auditorium, the same way that you would have heard the young Dylan sing and, and follow every single detail, mm-hmm. you'll be able to do that in opera. There's no, no, there'll be no um, microphones or acoustic support other than naturally designed effects. And they mm-hmm. had them, by the way. They had their own mm. way of um Oh, how did they do that? Sound. Architecture? Architecture, design, going back to the Greco-Romans to get the, the right type of amplification. Hmm. It's even uh, with the, I think, called a fossa that, that has that effect. And they had, of course, a, what they called the whispering point on the proscenium stage so that you could stand in that place and you get the perfect acoustic. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating about this project, and we're learning all the time, Gary, we're learning all the time. If you are performing in that theatre, the theatre itself becomes a director of the opera because you have to you sing your aria in this perfect place and you have the perfect acoustic, but then you have to move away to allow the next singer to come into the same. So it starts to, to control mm. the movement. Or wow. if you want to create something a bit sinister or someone a bit weak, you move them away from the whispering point to the sides hmm. and their voice change. Your voice doesn't carry. Voice, it, it, the, the quality changes. So mm-hmm. the theatre itself becomes a director of the opera. The whole experience is dictated by the type of theatre, and that will change from every single theatre you go to. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, beautiful. It's almost, well, just as with I'm a, I'm a violinist, and I've often felt like when you give attention to the instrument and when you play it, it's almost as if you imbue it with its own soul. If I don't play it for a long time, there's something missing and it, it, it's almost as if it needs to be nurtured alive again. So that's interesting. It sounds like the theater, especially in this instance, is like a living, breathing organism. Oh, I strongly believe that. I, I strongly yeah. believe that theaters are living, they have souls. They are living beings in that sense. They need, like your violin, that's an inanimate object, obviously. Mm-hmm. But when you perform it, when you bring music into it, it has its own being, its mm-hmm. own soul. Absolutely with theatres. You can feel a theatre if it's thriving or struggling when you walk mm-hmm. in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to hit the notifications for parts two and three and to learn more about with Teatro San Cassiano. And you can learn more about how to get involved on Thursday.